Hello everyone and welcome to this episode of The Abundant Edge, the podcast that delves into the worlds of natural building, permaculture, and regenerative living. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this episode, I had the pleasure of interviewing one of my heroes from the natural building world. His name is Patrick Henneberry, and he's built over 50 cob structures, 20 or so conventional houses, and has taught over 600 participants in more than 50 workshops. Though he never went to university, he's a totally self-taught carpenter builder, and he's very proud of his unconventional education because one of his mentors, and one of my mentors as well, Yanto Evans from the Cobb Cottage Company once told him that it was a good way to learn because he didn't have to spend a lot of time unlearning. He's extremely passionate about showing people how to live a simpler lifestyle, buy less stuff, and how to build a home with a smaller footprint. He says it's gratifying to see his students go on to build their own projects, teach others, and to become natural builders themselves. In this episode, he'll tell us all about some of the creative ways that he used to get around the permitting and coding process while building natural buildings on Main Island in British Columbia, Canada. He also gives some great stories about his experiences working with local communities in Mexico, and also shares some great insights on his experience with the difference between industrial and natural building. A quick disclaimer here, for the first time since I've started recording these podcasts, it was actually my internet connection that was better than Pat's, so his voice is going to come in a little bit weak, but I promise that it's easy to understand him. Um, there's just a little bit of distortion and uh, reverb during the interview. So I hope you enjoy. Here's Pat. Welcome, Patrick. Thank you so much for being with me here today. It's good to be here. I wish I was in Guatemala. <laughs> yeah, the weather is really gorgeous right now. It's cool, but very sunny. How is it in Victoria? It's sunny today. It's about freezing. Yeah, we had maybe a couple inches of snow, but it's been quite sunny. Oh, that's not too bad. Well, hey, let's get started now. Um, I'm a big fan of your work in the past, but I'd like to hear about how you actually got started. So what got you into natural building to begin with? Um, originally, the natural building I was interested in was Strabelle. Uh, in the late 80s, it was uh, the catchword. And... Uh, so I started building, I have 20 acres, I lived on a little island in the Gulf Islands. And uh, I started building a, a log frame building that I was going to infill with bales. And then I was at a natural building symposium on Salt Spring Island. And just, it was a two-day event. And as I was leaving the second day, they had all the literature laid out there. And I was looking through a permaculture activist. And I found this little tiny ad, and it said, learn how to build your house out of mud. Cottage, cottage Company, Cottage Grove, Oregon, P.O. Box, blah, blah. And that's I started, a, that was in 95. I started a correspondence with Yonko Evans, Cottage Company. And uh, I wanted a book. I've learned everything I've I know from books, so I didn't feel I needed works about. So he we corresponded for about two years. He finally told me, he said, well, we're working on the book. We don't have it out yet. So in 97, I took a seven-day cardboard shop in, uh, in Bella Coola off the coast in British Columbia. And uh, that just got me going. I thought I was meant to do this. And uh, so the next year, I hosted a workshop with Yonho and Alpha Core, and uh, we built a little car cabin on my property in Main Island. And that started me, and since then, I've built over 30 car houses. Wow, that's quite prolific. And so you were among the first people to get started with that revival here in the United States um, when Yanto and Linda originally brought it over. Why do you think it's important to make the switch from industrial construction to natural construction? Well, you just see how much waste. I was a, 
a carpenter, a soft-top carpenter living on this little island, and I built maybe 20 conventional homes. And uh, I was just astounded at the amount of waste in regular construction. And living on this little island, I used to all locally built, locally milled lumber. Um, I gather, I built five cop homes, cop buildings on my property on Main Island. And uh, all the posts and beam and rafters and the wood was off in the beach for all five houses. So I knew there was a better way, you know, with less waste, giving the guy with the sawmill on the little island the job and just using everything local. We had sand, we had clay, we had sandstone, um, the gross trap on Vancouver Island, so nothing had to come that far. And just, you know, some of the materials for conventional housing will come across the country and across the world. So I was trying to build a house just using local materials, keep the cost down. That's fantastic. Now, one of the most remarkable things about your work, you mentioned earlier, is that you're entirely a self-taught builder. How did you yeah. find the resources and the help to learn the skills you needed to be successful in building? Um, when I moved, I had a, a young son that was two months old. I moved to, to Maine Island from Vancouver. And uh, we got help from my wife's family. They had a lot. They bought on Maine Island in 1965 for $650. And I uh, asked why they didn't buy waterfront, and they said, oh, it was 850 <laughs> So they had this lot, so they said they would help us get going. So I thought, okay, I had grown up in, in the in interior of BC and was familiar with lot building. <clears throat> so I bought a book on lot building, bought a chainsaw, and just built a house. So most everything I learned from books, and after I built my first house, I started doing all jobs on the island. There was about 900 people who lived there, and uh, started building decks, and then I got auditions, and then I kind of bullshit my way into getting out, that someone built me the home. So that was the start, and and I guess. You know, Yanto, my mentor, Carl Pottis Company, he told me it was a good way to learn because I didn't have to unlearn a lot of stuff. Sure, that's the case for a lot of people. I know I come from a conventional building background and I went to school to be an engineer. Um, while a lot of those skills and that knowledge applies, there have been a lot of things that I've learned through natural building that have gone a little bit slower because I had to, like you said, unlearn some of the practices from the other industries. Yeah. Yeah, and what I've found over the years with natural building is everything kind of works. You know, you usually don't get an of fail, but you'll try something, whether it's a plaster or a mix, carb mix, and you'll just apply that knowledge that you learned from that onto your next house. So I've been fortunate to be able to build a lot of a lot of houses and uh you know i'm still learning stuff yeah of course that's one of the great things about continuing on that way is that it's a constant learning process i'm right there with you now you said that the books have been a huge influence on uh your learning and your growth as a builder do you have any recommendations of some of your favorite books or some of the resources that have really helped you out um I got books from Yanto. He used to get me a, a new book every year. And one of them is The Pattern Language by Christian Alexander. Yeah, I love and, that series. And it's, it's, Yanto described it to me as, said, it's terribly printed. The pictures are awful, the diagram, and it's very badly written, but he said it's an indispensable tool to every natural builder. Um, when I started out, there wasn't too many books. 
So I use the Strabail book by Donathan Steen and and that became my Bible. It had recipes for plaster, earth, and floors, and uh, I had uh, the fortune to meet. I went down to a Nakamoto's cloakroom last fall in Cloud uh, Springs in Southern California, and I met Max Meerman, and he was one of the pioneers of Strawberry, and uh, I had his Out on Bail newsletter came out like four times a year, and uh, I learned a lot from that, and I finally got to meet him, so that was, that was very gratifying. Um, books, I've got a lot of books now, but it's kind of after the fact. Sure. Um, I was quite, quite lucky, like again, maybe not having been trained in school as a, as a carpenter, that I can just work at stuff and build it. And most of the houses, I'll make a model or get the owner to make a model, but we won't necessarily have a plan. And especially as you know, as a builder with, with carved houses, it's a, it's an ergonomic process to design. And uh, it, it, you have to have the owner on the job site. You know, we'll, we'll build up three feet four feet to your belly button height and that's generally when all the windows go in. So all the windows will be there, you use windows, whatever they found, the owner found, whatever I brought to the site. And I'll get the participants of the workshop to hold the windows up where the owners would like them. Then they can walk through the house and realize, oh, if you move that kitchen window over three feet, they'll get a view down the valley or the pond, the mountains. And, uh, and then that's where the windows go. Yeah, absolutely. And it is a much more involved process because of it. But you often get a lot of results that fit the people who live in these buildings much more closely than a conventionally made structure would because it has their scale and their opinions in mind. I've, I've built conventional houses and the owner's you know, didn't come and see it till the framing was done, the roof was on, the side and the windows were in. And uh, whereas with Cobb, it's, you, they got to be there. Yeah, definitely. Make little decisions every day that come up. Yeah, that's definitely been my experience as well. Now, like we were talking about, you got started in Cobb when it was really young, the revival here in the United States. Um, what were some of the biggest challenges back then in finding clients and projects? Um, I was fortunate living on this little island. Is I never had a problem. I ended up building about 15 car houses on this little island, so it wasn't a problem. Um, the first cabin I built after a workshop car cottage company, I, I called it a studio. Yeah. And it was a self-contained little cabin. It had water, no electricity, though. And did that help you get around the permitting process? Well, what I what I did is I bought the, the Cobber's Companion had just come out, a little southbound Cobb how-to book with John Prince, with uh, Michael Smith and uh, Linda Smiley. And I bought copies for the building inspector and the department. I bought two copies, and I also bought them the straw bale bought. So when it came time to apply for a process for the studio, the local building inspector, he came from the next island over, he said, sure, we'll give you a permit. And uh, the next year, my neighbor across the road from us, she wanted, she saw building process and fell in love with it. She didn't necessarily need a house, but she wanted a guest house. So I approached the building inspection department and said, would you give me a permit for a block house? Because none had been issued in Canada at that point. And they said, sure. So I, I thought, well, I'm really going to push this. So I went two stories and made a load bit. 
And uh, so that was first for the Clockwise Canada, that was in 1999. And I asked the building inspector, you know, by the way, they, they said they would give me a permit play in software. And uh, that was the day before everything having to be engineered. And uh, he said, well, we've been inspecting your construction work for the last 10, 15 years. And uh, you've done a really good job with all your construction, so we trust you'll do it with this new car construction. Well, that's first, and that goes to show what you can gain by establishing a good reputation and a good rapport with the, the building inspectors. It's, yeah, I, what I've found is I've, I've had a good rapport with the building inspectors here, the head inspector used to take me out for lunch once a year and uh, we'd have a talk and he would say, you know, we really like your building, we think you're one of the most artistic builders on the island, and, but you got to play by some of the rules. Because <laughs> I, what I really felt like over the years is they went behind me and closed all the loopholes <laughs> that I used. Uh -huh. I built my first straw bale car house that I lived in with my family for five years, um, it was originally going to be just straw bale. And uh, so I listed it as an experimental storage shed. So when they came and inspected it, the final inspection, he said, this is a pretty nice storage shed. And I said, well, I've done pretty nice stuff. <laughs> That's and awesome. That's creative. I, yeah, I like that. When I would do a, a workshop on Maine in the summer or any of the other islands, I would get the building inspector to come and talk to the group and just showing them how important that dialogue was. And uh, it was in the summer and all the regular building inspectors were on holidays. So we had our original, the head head guy of all of us who were island over and uh, he'd been the first building inspector I met on Main Island. So the, the participants had a question and answer period and they asked them, you know, why, why would you approve car houses? What makes it different? And he said, I grew up in the car house. He was from England. Yeah, wow, that's remarkable. You don't find many people who have had that experience anymore outside of England or a few other places in Europe. And what what happened, what I saw happening was the inspector that issued me the permits for my five houses, it, uh, it got him a certain amount of notoriety and, uh, and he loved it. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> and he was getting emails and letters and correspondence from building inspection departments from all across the country and all across the United States. And they were asking what he did to approve it and stuff. So he, he really enjoyed that. Yeah, it sounds like you had a good advocate sort of working on your side after that point and helping to show people that these things... Uh, these structures can, you know, be very long-lasting and, and worthy of, of approving. Well, they, they have in the building inspection code, it's called equivalency. Mm -hmm. and basically, it takes in everything that's not conventional building. And, you know, like lab houses, they're not in the building code, but they've lived in them for hundreds of thousands of years, and they work. And it's the same with car buildings, where they've lived in them for a long time, and uh, they know they work. And I think that now it's it's probably more difficult getting a building permit because they want everything engineered. So that's I haven't found that to be a very big problem though, because they're more concerned about what's holding up the roof. They want to make sure it doesn't collapse. And so you do, you just drop up or make plan for a timber frame or a log frame structure and then infill it with They As long as they know the roof's not going to fall down, they don't care what the walls are made of. 
Yeah, that's what I found as well. There's a lot of uh, leeway if you can show that the roof is being held up with a material that they have metrics for and that they can understand with, you know, um, the engineering that they're used to using. And they're much more forgiving about different types of infill if you can prove that, the, like you said, the roof isn't going to fall down. I built, uh, 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 I built during the summer, I have been the last five years at our Eco Village, Charm of the Lake in Vancouver Island. And uh, I built one with a, a group, a mountain project. And it was about a 300 square foot. And it was, they didn't have a place for the garden manager for the sweet built this little place, but it had like a 600 square foot roof on it. It had a big overhang and uh, made it totally load-bearing. Now, I'm not sure how they represented it. I didn't meet with the building inspector in that one, but I think it could have been just a tool shell. <laughs> right. And looking for loopholes in that way, sometimes you can stay within the size limitations for a permanent building and get away with it that way. That's pretty small, 100 square feet. Yeah, definitely. That's usually well below what is required in most counties, most regions. Yeah, I think ours is 116 or something. But then they say, oh, that's the outside of the walls. Mm, Yeah. It depends on how they count the envelope, I agree. Sometimes they even count uh, how far the roof overhangs. It's it's worth checking into if that's one of the approaches you want to do to get your building permitted. Yeah. So now one of the reasons why I was so excited to talk to you is because you actually come from a conventional building career before you started a natural building, and that's not common of everyone. Um, so one of the things that I really wanted to ask was, what are some of the aspects and lessons from conventional building that apply to natural building as well? Well, I get a lot of people corresponding with me, and they say, you know, they realize that I'm busy, I'm only one person, and can I recommend someone to build them a clubhouse? And it, it's really difficult, because if there was more people that came from my background, it would be easier. There's a lot of good carvers out there, and there's a lot of good carpenters out there, but there's not a lot of car- carpenters. <laughs> And so my advice to, to people that, you know, are taking workshops, whether they want to become a natural builder, whether they want to teach workshops, is to get as much carpentry experience as you can. You can learn clab in a month pretty good. And, you know, after you build your first clab house, you learn a lot. But uh, you still got to put a roof on it. You still got to understand how window and door box fit, how you're going to fix cabinets or interior fastenings into the car. And uh, so having a building background made it a whole lot easier. I agree. That's been my experience as well. Um, A lot of the techniques and a lot of the skills that I learned from conventional building, doing renovations, doing retrofits and stuff, have been some of the things that I've relied most heavily on when I build natural buildings as well. Uh, like you said, a lot of the fundamentals of working with earth, especially cob, can be learned very quickly, but there's a whole other skill set back there that a lot of other natural builder a lot of other natural builders are a little bit short on and some of their projects suffer because of it. Now I'm not saying, of course, uh, you know, that you need to go and work on a bunch of conventional build sites, but uh, at the same time, recognize that those skill sets apply just as much in natural building, even if the materials that you're using are different. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things that this natural building carpet I went to October in California is they had a bunch of the pioneers, they called them. And uh, one of the questions was, you know, how can we hand over the reins of power? And I was never so impressed as many young people in their 20s and 30s that were building, there were women, very powerful women. It seems to attract women. I've always had more women 
come to my workshops than, than men. And uh, Eddie Gerwin came away from that little meeting feeling that the, the torch was being passed very well. Yeah, that's fantastic. There are some really inspiring younger people getting started as well, I agree. Now, on the flip side of what I asked you originally, what are some of the aspects of conventional construction and and um, and industrial building that could benefit from some of the ethics and some of the techniques that are learned through natural building? Hmm. I don't know about commercial aspects, but you know, as far as residential goes. It allows people to learn how to build their own house and uh, put the power back in their hands. You know, even the smallest car house is still a house. It's still a, a big project. I've been making tiny homes the last couple of years, and uh, it's tiny but it's still a house you know there's still a lot of work that goes into it and uh, just the carpentry skills timber framing uh, log framing pole building all of those things I've, I've had to do them on me now and uh, I just for me I just made it up and that was okay uh, I think what people get when they take a cardboard shop is they get confidence. And, uh, and that's a big thing, I think, that holds most people back about building their own house. It's like, where do I start? You know, how, what if I can't finish this? And, uh, and what they get from the workshop is just confidence as they realize the building process, that if they started, they'll, they'll know how to keep going. Certainly. Now, let's switch yep. gears a little bit for a second. I know you've been, uh, for a few years now, doing many projects and workshops down in Mexico. Could you tell yeah. me a little bit about some of those projects and what first brought you to work down there? I went down with, uh, I had a new wife, or we were soon to be married, and it was in 03. We had an old... 70 station wagon we drove down to Baja and we, we met up with another couple from Main Island and they've been associated with this family in this ramp for quite a few years so we hung out there and I realized that they were living in a old concrete block house and there was three generations of people it was crowded it was hot it was cold and uh, looking at the type of construction down there, which is mostly cement black. So we talked with the owner and uh, of the raft. He was a young guy, he was, he was about 35. He had a 22-year-old 20, wife and three little boys. And uh, so I said, how about if we come down and we'll show you how to build a place out of, out of the order. So they thought that was funny. So they, they didn't believe it was going to happen. And then the next year we showed up and I started making trips to the airport to pick up participants. And then they, and I said, you know, there's going to be mostly women working on your house. And they laughed and laughed. Thought this was funny that these gringo women were going to build them a house. And then, then we started. And, uh, one day the wife, the young wife, she was crying and sobbing at dinner time and she said all the other people in the village were laughing at her because she was getting the house out of my life. So we assured her that she would have the most beautiful house. And uh, I just saw pictures on Facebook. I hadn't seen the people for about eight years. and. Uh, their house is totally beautiful. They got a fireplace in it, run from the fireplace. And uh, we were, the day we were, before we were going to leave that project, a guy showed up on the site from the next town over, and he had a picture of the covers, or he had a book that Yonto's new book, The Hand Sculpted House. And uh, he said, 
it's beginning this. That's just terrible. And uh, so he said, come tomorrow to Santiago and look at the site. So he took us there and we met his family. He was a pharmacist in this little town. His wife was a doctor and he had two sons. And I'd always, you know, built for the ranch for people that didn't have any money. But what I was rapidly finding out after several projects down there is, it's just financially not viable. I have family, I have three kids, we have twin boys. Uh, the first time we drove to Baja, they were two months old. And uh, so it just wasn't financially viable. So then I built a house for these more affluent Mexicans. And uh, it was amazing. Because what happened is all the people come out to see this house. And, you know, if you were building for the poorest people, they would think, oh, that's okay for the poor people. But when they see a doctor and a pharmacist building this type of house, then they thought, and then, then you can build for the poor people. Yeah. Made them much more accepting of it. I've seen that happen in a lot of places. It's hard to get opinions changed about what earthen building and what earthen architecture can be until you get someone with some status in the community to adopt it. And that's usually the quickest way to show people that this is a desirable way to build and not sort of a last resort for people who have limited resources. In, in 2012, I went down and I built a, a house for a retired doctor his wife in, in the state of Sonora and uh, he's gone on he takes school groups of kids into his home and he teaches them about cloud building and stuff so he's become a really good ambassador for teaching other kids we, one year we, we built for Two friends of ours from from Vancouver, and uh, what we did is we it was about that was in '09, so we'd been building down there for about five or six years in Mexico, and uh, what we did is we hired all the people that we built houses for. We hired them to work on this house, and it was a paying job for them. They didn't run it as a workshop, and that was another good way of. Of, you know, they worked for four or five months on this house. So it gave them jobs and skills. Because lots of the time you offer the workshop free to Mexicans, but they got jobs. They, they Even though it's free, they still can't afford it. So finding which we have to pay them to take a workshop. So like, Doing his paying job, it worked out really well for the owners and for the, the family. That uh, we had four brothers working there one time. That's fantastic. Now, for people who are just getting started building, who are considering for the first time working with earthen or you know other types of natural materials, what advice would you give to them? Um. When people come and they take a car workshop, they, they think they're just learning how to build a house in the market. But what it's about, it's about building sustainability, it's about living sustainably, it's about making a smaller footprint, <clears throat> it's about buying my craft. Anyway, is what it boils down to. And it's about working in community, it's about you know, meeting new people and, and gaining new skills as a group of people. So it's a, it's a wonderful experience for, for people, whether, whether they go on to build a car house or not, it doesn't really matter. They learn a whole new way of looking at the world and the environment. I can't. <laughs> And what are some of the ethics that go along with the building skills, like you mentioned, um, of creating a smaller footprint, um, buying less things, 
and finding more creative ways to use the resources that you have available, what are some of the key changes that someone can make to achieve those goals other than perhaps going to a natural building workshop? Well, I think the natural building workshop is, is a good starting point for them. Uh, I encourage people to take any carpentry courses they can or to just wander around to a job site with their building with smiles, regular star house. What my dad taught me was if you want a job, you go there every single day. <laughs> you do that for a month, they'll hire you. You know, you might start off carrying boards and pulling nails and stuff, but you'll be learning power tools and uh, you need to pick up, you need a place to store. I mean, you, you start driving around back alleys and see how much stuff is just laying there. And one of the theory classes I, I do during the course of the workshop is how to, how to get recycled stuff. And most of us are embarrassed to ask for stuff. They don't know you. And the worst they can say is, no. So it's not a big deal. One of the things I've learned is when, you know, you spot a pile of old plywood or corn plywood on someone's house. Just go during the day and uh, talk to the wife. She'll say, sure, take it. you got to take it right now. Don't say you'll come back with your truck on the weekends. So just how to acquire stuff. I made a house this spring, a friend and I, a tiny home. It was 8 feet by 20 feet. And uh, we built the entire thing out of pallets. And I've never built a path before, so that was one of the things where you don't really start learning. And uh, it was wonderful. And paths are great. They were used once. They were like brand new boards. And uh, and there's big pallets out there. We found some that were 8 feet by 20 feet. Oh, wow. I've used pallets a lot they before, went, but I've never seen them that big. They, it required two forklifts to lift it. I don't know what was on it originally, but uh, that would do for the whole roof one piece. It was heavy. Yeah, but We didn't take that, have to cut it down. But pallets are, we ended up getting way too many pallets just as we were excited. <laughs> Then we had to get rid of them, so we had a pen city here for the homeless people, and they had a sacred fire. So every week we'd take the trailer with the old cut up pallets or pack pots we weren't going to use, and uh, they would come rushing out. They really appreciated them. Nice. So since working in the natural building trades from, is it more than 30 years now? For me? Yeah. Since you started in 1995? No, that's... I, I took my first car workshop in 97. Okay. So getting up there for sure. Started. Definitely one of the people who's been doing this longer. What have been some of the most remarkable changes that you've seen in that time? And where do you see things progressing and advancing in the years to come? I see pictures on the website of what people are building now. And, you know, when I was doing it, it was, everyone was all impressed, but now you see there's a lot of people doing it, and they're really pushing it to the extreme for house art, and, uh, and just beautiful creations. They've taken plastering, and uh, it, it's a whole new art form, Cadillac, earthen floors, and just every aspect, the woodwork. I used to think, you know, in some of the earlier pictures I saw when I was starting out, how well, you know, a nice plastic cardboard, stonework, and carpentry work, how they all, when it was all done in Catholic, it was such beautiful work of art. And I see that more and more now. I don't, I don't know whether cardboard is become mainstream, will become mainstream or not. Like straw bale, you can make it look like a conventional house. 
I mean, you can do that with car, but why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's to, to disavow so many of the benefits of the material. I bet, I bet if you had a square, pop square. And, uh, and they were fun. You know, after you build a certain number of pop houses, you know, you can make the curves and stuff, but sometimes you just want to do it. And each house is built specifically for an owner. So you kind of get a good feel on what the owner wants, what they like. And so where do you see some of the advancements and some of the direction within the natural building world going in the years to come? Where is it going? Or what, what would you like to see more of, perhaps? I'd like to see it more used as <clears throat> building for homeless or just an inexpensive way. It can be inexpensive. It's not necessarily so. For people that need homes, that's, that's where the biggest need is. And I think by building homes for some of the more affluent people, like we said before, it shows that this is what the rich people are living in. I mean, in Mexico, where they build the cement black houses, they've been looking for years, and that's what they build in America. So that's what they want. So I think that, uh, you know, in countries like, like Nicaragua, like Guatemala, Mexico, Central America, that uh, there's a real need for showing people. Do you know Liz Jondro? I do. I actually just interviewed her about a week ago. Okay. She was at the colloquium. She took her first cardboard shop with us in Mexico. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so I assisted on a natural building workshop with her um, at the begin or no at the end of November of uh, of last year, and also with so that, uh, with Charlie Rendell. So we added some bamboo elements in there as well. Okay, such a thing, bamboo element. I never did get to work in, but what I'm finding is you don't have enough time to do it all. Yeah. And not all of it really applies or is ideal for working in certain climates. I'm not, I mean, I'm sure you could make bamboo work in a colder northern climate, but at that point, you're importing it from so far away and you're forcing it to do things that it isn't really designed to do that, you know, it starts to lose its sort of eco or green factor at that point. Well, I've seen huge stands of, of yeah, actually, I know a guy who's got a bamboo forest there and cultivates it for all sorts of different uses, but the really large grade types that are used in, like, beam construction, they don't grow that yeah. far north. Yeah. You could still use it for a while and it's got lots of good uses. Oh, yeah. Yeah. All different types of bamboo are endlessly useful. And certainly it could be used in, in certain aspects of, uh, of construction up there and definitely for interior decorating, um, maybe some accent pieces. There's tons of uses yeah. for it, for sure. Just, I, I don't get other stuff from the beach and it's like, we call it hot lumberyard, whatever, twice a day. <laughs> and yeah, I have a different take, but natural building materials, and they're all not really natural, but I think if you're keeping something on the landfill, it's got to happen. Yeah, so absolutely. I was in Lumber one time, and they had someone, some project had needed, you know, the OSB? Yeah. And they cut an 8-inch piece off a 4-foot wide piece of sheet of this stuff. And there was four pads or eight inches by 48 inches. And they were going to haul it to the dump. And it was free, but you had to take it all. <laughs> so I got a friend with a two-ton truck there. And they loaded it up. And I thought, my God, what am I doing? How am I going to get rid of that? Within a year, it was hard time. Yeah, there's always a use for that. And like you, you said, know, I, recycling I, and reusing materials, if they're going to get chucked anyway... That's definitely yeah. 
That's definitely a benefit. I, I made a pole building during one workshop, and uh, we covered the roof of this. It was half inch. Oh, I was big. And I put two layers on and it got rid of about a third of it. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it, it all got used. You know, it's the same we have at the, uh, at the Recycle Depot. They have a painter's exchange. And you can go up there and all the paint is free. So I usually get oil stains and, and stuff like that. But if you're going to paint anything, there was five-gallon buckets of unopened paint. Contractors bring it in. Wow. Just over orders and... It, yeah. And you just sign for it. And, uh, and you can take as much as you want. Yeah, that's a remarkable resource. It's one of the nice things, um, well, nice and bad things about living in countries that kind of overconsume and are extremely wasteful is that you can get a lot yeah. out of those waste streams. Those waste streams don't really exist, I'm sure, as you've seen, like in Mexico or here in Guatemala. Um, but, you know, there's benefits to we that, had, too. We, we were... Uh, building at this ranch in, in Baja, and they had their own garbage dump <laughs> right in front of the house. And I used to send a couple guys down there every morning and say, okay, we need wires. There's old cars. We need wires. We need this. We need that. And they would go down to this Mexican garbage dump and bring back stuff. I tell you, the Mexicans were so impressed. I got paid the greatest compliment. They said that I would make a good Mexican. <laughs> that is high praise. <laughs> so, before I let you go here, do you have any upcoming projects or workshops in the near future? I did a lot. I built four places this year and it kind of wore me out. So, I'm apprehensive about taking too much time. I'm looking at Kenya. Really? Teaching the Africans how to build out of mud. <laughs> it's interesting that uh, certain communities there need to rediscover some of their traditions. I myself worked in uh, Senegal building with mud, cob, and adobe there. Um, yeah. It's strange because they're not, that, they're only one or two generations, and sometimes not even that, removed from building with mud. And it's incredible how quickly those traditions can get lost. It, it is, because you're not teaching them anything they don't have it known. Yeah. It's the same in oh, we get old guys coming onto the site, and they can remember building the same way with the car with their grandfathers when they were little. Yeah. Yeah, it's really not that far removed. Well, are you planning on uh, hooking back up with Elka Cole when you get to that area? No. Okay. I heard she's in Cameroon at the moment. She was in... Then she went to Kenya. A lot of people don't... My friend just got back. I haven't uh, been in contact with Conrad, but I know of his work. Yeah. He was at the colloquium. In California, and then from there he went on to six weeks in Kenya. So he's back in Oregon now. But yeah, I've heard a lot of different people doing stuff there. Yeah, there's some fantastic projects going on in that region. Um, well, okay, so for people who want to get in touch with you and maybe learn more about your work and read some of the articles that you've put out, how, how is the best way to get in contact with you? Email. I don't have a phone. Fair enough. Um, and I'll be sure to put your email address in the show notes for anybody who's looking to get in contact with you there. Also, okay. and the website, the website is just cobworks.com. And if anybody hasn't seen that already, there's some fantastic articles on there. And I believe you're trying to release a book soon. Is that true? I'm working on it. Excellent. And I think um, if I saw correctly, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll get updates on when that book will be coming out, correct? Yes. Awesome. So for anybody who wants to learn more, 
go ahead and sign up for his newsletter at cobworks.com. Patrick, thank you yeah, so much or, for, for taking the time today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Or email me directly. It would even be better than going through the newsletter. Hey, there you go. Okay, have a good time. Are you at the lake? I am at the lake, yeah. I'm working with Charlie Rendell right now. I did a whole study on Lake Katina and Guatemala. I wanted to move there. <laughs> yeah, it really sucks you in, this community. There's some, well, to say nothing about the beauty of the climate and the landscape and the culture, um, it's, and it's just a great place to be. Which town are you in? I'm in San Marcos. Okay. Yeah. Okay, well, it's nice talking to you, Oliver. Hey, it was my pleasure, Pat. We'll definitely be in touch. Thanks so much for your time. Okay. Bye. Okay, bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, you can go to the website at AbundantEdge.com for all of the show notes from this episode, as well as a full range of contracting, design, and consulting services, and an extensive list of educational articles all about natural building, permaculture, and regenerative living. As always, the point of these podcasts is not to be a lecture series or a one-way conversation. I really want these to become a dialogue. So please leave comments and feedback in the comments section on the show notes on the website. I really look forward to hearing from all of you. Your feedback is what makes these episodes better each time, especially here in the early days when I'm just getting started out. I would love to hear what you would like to hear more of, and perhaps who you would like to hear from. Until the next time, thanks so much for listening.